Hi everyone, welcome to Failed Architecture, a podcast on architecture and the real world. This is Chiara Dorbolo speaking. I'm here together with René Bohr and Charlie Clemens. Hi. Charlie, you produced this podcast, so maybe you can say something about this episode and what it is about. Sure, yeah. Um, so the title of the episode is Architects Unionize. It's obviously quite a kind of direct call to arms to architects to try and get them thinking a little bit more about the idea of uh, acting collectively to make a more kind of collective challenge to the profession, uh, to maybe even try and change the conditions that they work within and also to take more control over their work. Um, obviously, we at Failed Architecture are mostly non-architects, but Chiara, you are actually an architect. You are the architect among us, and um, you've you've had a listen to the episode. Uh, I'd be interested to know what your take was on this particular topic. Did, did anything kind of ring true, or, or was there something that really kind of uh, resonated with your experience working as an architect? Well, yes, of course, everything sort of rang true in a way, like the working conditions, the crazy hours, and the fact that um, in architecture, architects tend to not see themselves as workers somehow. And this has to do probably with what we call the calling in the article that recently came out, which is part of the same series on failed architecture. And I think that has to do, of course, with a series of like historical events and the historical development of the profession, as, as we will see later in the podcast, but also with this myth of the calling and with this idea that, as, as we say in the article, it's not work if you're doing what you love. And the fact that if you are not seeing yourself as a worker, but as someone who's like following a passion, then somehow you're not entitled to the same working rights that um, other workers have. And um, maybe this is also a good moment to ask ourselves how this is relevant for us, for failed architecture, for yeah, people exactly. that are working in the field, but not really strictly speaking as yeah. architects. Yeah, it's interesting to... Uh to pause for a moment and to and to reflect on our own position. It's interesting you're mentioning also this idea of the calling because that's also something that we are also part of, right? I mean, we also think it's our calling to to reflect on our architecture and spatial development and be critical about that and join a voluntary project such as Field Architecture and spend all lots of crazy hours in evenings and weekends on, on such a project. And now yeah, it's interesting to to think about how, how, how field architecture works also. I mean, Uh, we're all self-employed, um, and what is interesting is that field architecture uh, maybe also works uh, in a way to yeah, to create some visibility for our personal projects, uh, which also allow our own practices to 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 blossom. Um, yeah, and no, I mean, a, a, a big a big aspect of you know the way that we're able to operate is through this commitment to not really being paid very much or at all. Yeah. for what we do, which has meant that we can make these kinds of challenges to the profession, to the architectural world. We're not beholden to particular vested interests, so we can actually say in a way that other magazines probably can't, hey, like, bosses, you, you're, not, you're not treating your workers properly. Yeah. And I wanted to kind of point this out. I think it's important within this subject that while we're not beholden to vested interests, that does mean that we need some other sources of revenue. And I think this is a good point to 
highlight the fact that we have been maintaining an ongoing supporters system. So we really need the support of listeners and everybody that's been enjoying the Failed Architecture platform. We really want to do a lot more. There's lots of things that we are working on that take a little bit longer because we have to do it in our spare time and things like that. Yeah, and, and what is actually also great is that we can now think a bit, plan ahead a bit more and rather than just work with like unsolicited articles, can like plan for like longer series of articles and commission people to, to, to write for us specifically and pay them also a little bit. <laughs> And yeah, so this, this episode is actually also part of one of the, actually the first series uh, we're doing, Building Workers Unite. Kara, would, would you like to say something about that? Yeah. Uh, yes. So Building Workers Unite is calling for articles about working conditions in architecture. Um, and we've already had two articles out. And one is about the myth of the calling in architecture. And uh, the other one is is more closely related to the theme of the podcast today. So it's it's about architects unions in the UK. And then we have five more articles to come and there are like a lot of interesting themes. Um, what are you about? Uh, there's one about embodied energy and uh, one about the construction industry in India. And uh, well, but I think maybe this is enough. Been giving too many spoilers and <laughs> we can maybe now get into the podcast. Yeah, let's have a listen, right? Yeah, great. Are architects workers? We tend to think of the architect as someone in charge of a process, a person who designs, creates, delegates, but no one who works for a living, at least in the conventional sense of working for a wage and not much like the workers who actually construct or extract the resources of the buildings they design. This image of the architect as a member of a lofty profession may have persisted throughout the modern period, but it fails to reflect the real conditions of architectural work in the 21st century. Architects are in reality part of a highly contingent workforce, increasingly precarious and reliant on short-term contracts, often working long hours without pay. This new reality brings with it new opportunities to rethink the role of the architect in the workplace and in the working world. If architects are just another group of exploited workers, perhaps they can find inspiration from the many achievements, and, to be sure, failures, of the centuries-old labour movement. Perhaps they can find common cause with other workers involved in the building process, as well as wider urban social movements. And perhaps through this combined strength, they can even help transform the essential structure of the global building industry so that it works in the interests of humans and the environment, instead of short-term profit. For this episode, we'll be talking to architectural workers from the UK, the USA and Brazil about the role unions could play in the contemporary architectural profession. We'll consider how unionization could give ordinary architectural workers greater control over the buildings and spaces they design and help them forge links and find common cause with workers in similar industries who might be experiencing similar working conditions. We'll also discuss the difficulties, limits and challenges of organising architectural workers and speculate as to why architects have, until recently, been relatively absent from the history of the labour movement. But first, let's start with that basic question of what contemporary architectural work involves. How does the conventional image of the architect compare to the situation architects face right now? Architecture historically has been a kind of 
gentlemanly profession, right? Uh, and, and you used to kind of have an office that had draftspeople in it who were kind of doing the production work uh, while the gentlemanly professional, as it were, uh, was kind of handling the design and, and the kind of management. That's Kiefer Dunn, national organizer for the architecture lobby a US-based membership organization composed of architectural workers advocating for workers' rights within the field. Though not yet a union, Kiefer told me that members of the lobby describe it as a proto-union, and they're working towards obtaining recognition in specific workplaces, despite being somewhat limited by the severe restrictions on unions in US law. One of the shifts uh, that's kind of happened slowly over the past several decades has really been and architects themselves, architectural workers, have kind of, I, I, I don't know, t- taken taken over more of the pie of the kind of labor time in offices uh, in the sense that the, the profession is kind of proletarianized, meaning that architects are increasingly kind of selling their labor power in order to survive and that, you know, we're doing kind of more, more of the drafting, more of more of more of everything. Um, I think that now, um, now you're seeing alongside just a ge- kind of general political awakening and, uh, you know, that has to do with austerity politics and bigger questions of political economy, architects sort of really saying and realizing, you know, I have more in common with workers anywhere than I do with the kind of, you know, uh, professional petit bourgeois identity. So I think, I think that that, that's really the crux of it. And I think that you see this in the U.S. kind of in, in a lot of different ways. I mean, I think that, um, you know, architecture is, it's always been a kind of, you know, service profession. Um, but now you kind of have the, the, uh, uh, a pretty rigid bifurcation between kind of very service-oriented firms and sort of more academic-leaning sort of smaller smaller practices, um, and, and maybe also you could say small practices that kind of uh, explicitly cater to a very wealthy clientele. Um, and so in, in, in the U.S., that means that you have people who are kind of get into architecture uh, to, to put something beautiful in the world, to, to make change, to, you know make something better than was there before. I think that's why we all kind of, you know, get into architecture. And increasingly, they realize that in these service-oriented firms that you are just kind of a cog in the wheel, you know, to get permits and spur on development. And uh, in, in the kind of uh, uh, academic and, and boutique uh, world that you might be doing work that's architecturally interesting, um, but it's sort of hamstrung from the social good, making social good in other ways. So those are kind of two sides of the same coin that have to do with, you know, the way that the kind of development process works in the U.S. uh, and and everywhere, really. And I think that uh, we're interested in kind of maybe galvanizing a worker's consciousness and agency that can change that structure. Uh, recognizing that it's, you know, not, not enough to kind of be individually opposed to that system. Since even if, even if you are, the, you know, uh, what, what can one person do about it? This is an important point, and one which we'll be coming back to throughout the episode, which is that 
most architects have relatively few opportunities to affect change through their practice, since, like all workers, they're forced to sell their labour in order to survive, and so are limited in what kinds of work they're able to do by who has the money to pay them. This situation, in which only a few architects have significant influence over the built environment, invariably has an impact on the way the majority of architects interact with their work and with each other, since it creates a hierarchy in which everyone is competing against each other as they climb the greasy pole to the top of the profession. This was a point also made in a conversation I had with Sam and Alex, two members of Workers' Inquiry Architecture, a group of architectural workers in the UK who, like Architecture Lobby, have not yet formally established themselves as a union, but are planning to do so in the near future. What I've experienced is that working in architecture is incredibly uh, competitive, it's precarious, um, and very individualised. I mean, from being in uh, university or in practice, I kind of really understood and saw myself as an individual um, and whether your kind of aims and objectives were always about what you could achieve, right? Whether you're going to run your own practice, be your own director. Um, and I guess it's about you achieving your own ambitions. But the, so the, so also within the practice, it's incredibly, because of that nature, it's, it's like re very tiered and hierarchical. There's a career ladder of a assistant uh, architect, architecture assistant, you know, the architect, uh, the project architect, senior architect, associate, directors, managing directors, partners, etc. Um, and also that doesn't include also kind of like, I guess, uh, security guards or receptionists or BIM technicians. Um, yeah, and so it's like a very pyramid structure, really. Um, and then in terms of the yeah, majority of people that are working in those practices will be unpaid for their overtime, um, which is rampant across the UK. And and I guess a lot of the time this is put down to the fact that uh, in the 80s and 90s, the, the fee scales were abolished by uh, Margaret Thatcher and then in sort of 2008, 2009, I think, or maybe it was 2010, the kind of um, uh, advisory fee scales were abolished again. And so I guess this is the way in which practices kind of like point to that um, as, a, as a moment in which it became a lot more competitive. So they had to charge less fees in order to get the work. But this then ultimately lands on us, on our shoulders as workers within that profession. I feel like on our level of work, the situation is quite universal um, across the world. <laughs> Obviously, there are specificities, but um, I have a lot of friends who work in, say, the Netherlands, Belgium, Spain, um, or, yeah, talking to a group of people in Prague. Their situation is even worse because they're all essentially uh, freelance workers. Um, so it's like a gig economy of architectural labour. So yeah, and I feel like throughout university and working with different people that you have the same kind of stories, working late nights, sleeping at university, etc, etc. Yeah. I guess maybe something as well, like when you're talking about like sleeping late, late nights or whatever is like, I mean, personally, recently I've experienced this with people that are working in the industry who kind of, they'll complain and, and, and obviously it's, uh, it's bad to have it to work very late, but it's just so common. And like when you realize that like all of your friends are working until, you know, 10 at night, uh, maybe every night of the week, even at the weekend, sometimes depending on 
when the projects are in, it, it just becomes so normalized. And so like you having to stay till 8 p.m. is seen as a good thing. And so like I've definitely had that before where I'm like, well, you know, it's not the end of the world because, you know, my friend over there is having to work a lot harder than me. As Alex said there, she sees the problems in architecture replicated elsewhere in the world. To find out more about this, I spoke to Fernanda Simon, an architect and union activist based in Brazil. It was never easy in Brazil working as an architect, especially nowadays that we're facing an economical crisis. Uh, this crisis comes along with a political crisis as well, and we have, we've been having some changes that have been made by the government that affects not only architects, but the whole working class. Right now we have less investment in construction, in public policies. Um, not only we don't have an investment by, by the government, but we also don't have many investments in the private sector. So that means that many professionals lost their jobs and they're facing a very hard time to survive working, working with architecture independently. That's what many people are doing right now, working independently. And it's harder to do that because uh, architecture is a very complex profession. It's better if you work in a team, right? At the same time, there's something that uh, it's also an issue for us that our profession is not that valued by the whole society. Some people think that we are not necessary or some other people think that architects are very expensive. So they just don't hire one and they build things by themselves. And so professionals, they often struggle to charge for their work, you know. Also, we have some recent changes in our labor laws. It was in 2017. We have more flexible labor laws now, and that reduces the number of formal workers. You know, a worker working for an enterprise with rights to vacation, to a salary, all those things. And uh, that's why many people are working, more and more people are working independently. And they have to, um, well, they have to survive, of course. And sometimes they put themselves in, in some situations where they are exploited. That also impacts unionizing as well, because it's harder yeah. to unionize independent workers. Sometimes yeah. they don't even see themselves as, as workers, you know. They, they think they're bosses of themselves and yeah. that they don't have any work uh, labor rights. They, they don't need it. The Brazilian architecture profession is represented by CAL, the Council of Architecture and Urbanism, an organization similar to the Royal Institute for British Architects, REBA, and the American Institute of Architects, AIA. But unlike the UK and the USA, Brazilian architects also have a union which represents their interests as workers, the FNA, the National Federation of Architects and Urbanists. Until recently, Fernanda was one of the directors of FNA, responsible for the Secretariat of Organization and Training, as well as being president of the Architects and Urbanists Union in the state of Santa Catarina, which is affiliated to FNA. I asked Fernanda to explain what FNA does and how it differs from CAL. Yeah, they are two different things. Uh, CAL is yeah. a regulating council, because here in Brazil, every profession that can bring any risk to the society needs to have a regulating council. So CAO is supposed to defend the best interests of Brazilian society, and they are supposed to supervise and mentor the architects. And on the other way, FNA 
is supposed to defend the architect's interests, on, especially on labor issues. So FNIA is a higher degree union entity, yeah. and it, it brings together 17 other architects and urbanist unions. Yeah. These unions, they act locally, each one in a different state of Brazil. And they represent every architect and urbanist in Brazil. Uh, they represent uh, not the architecture firms itself, but the architects who work at the firms, the architects, even the ones who own the firms. And uh, uh, FNIA and the, the unions, they are supposed to protect and defend uh, architects and urbanists' interests in labor issues. So FNIA works in a national way and the, the, the unions work locally. And so they have the same objectives. And FNIA, among, amongst its, its attributions, uh, represents architects before authorities, and they also assist the local unions. FNIA and the unions has this attribution to, uh, to connect, to negotiate the architects and their employers, or the public sector, or even uh, not exactly the clients, but we can have like campaigns on uh, to inform the population, uh, for example, what architects are for, uh, the importance of your, our profession. And uh, we also need to connect architects between architects, as sometimes architects can be workers or can, they can be the employers as well. Despite the lack of a union like FNR in the US and the UK, there's been a growing interest in unionization amongst architects in both these countries. Much of this has to do with the changes in the nature of architectural work that we discussed earlier. But I asked Alex and Sam, and Kiefer, what broader conditions in the field of architectural work, and work in general, might have generated this new interest? It does feel like there has been a shift, particularly among younger people, those studying at the moment, also from some universities trying to rethink their curriculum a bit and actually uh, questioning what architectural work is for. Um, I mean, this is also tied to knowledge of gentrification, particularly in London. Um, like, it's just unavoidable. You know what impact your work is having. From what we've discussed, it is very much about, oh, how can we make sure that we, like, how can we deal with the fact that we're probably going to be redundant every other year? Um, and yeah, even in practices that are, have a lot of good media, but good projects, winning a lot of competitions, and then the next moment you see that they've laid off a third of their staff. And those two things are just automatically go hand in hand because the industry is so volatile. People are worried about their own value as someone working in architecture. Like you've gone through this whole process of doing your undergrad, doing your masters, even doing your part three, and then you're still just can be dropped by yeah. the click of a finger. <laughs> um, I would still say there's also a lot of work to be done in that like a lot of people within the industry kind of don't necessarily see unionizing as something that's kind of tempting or kind of, you know, something that they want to be involved in because it's quite a scary prospect. And so 
as easy as, as it is to talk about, say, Brexit or general politics, it's very different than talking about your own, uh, the politics within your workplace and your relationship to your boss, the way in which you're getting exploited. And people might be frustrated at those things, and rightfully so, but not necessarily see uh, the way out of those things as sort of a collective thing, but generally seeing it still as kind of like, oh, I need to argue better within my next review for a higher pay because I'm being, you know, paid a lot less than my peers, um, you know, rather than seeing that as a systematic, yeah, fault. Interestingly, I think the austerity in universities has really created an atmosphere of organizing on the campus for graduate student unions, uh, adjunct faculty unions, and that sort of thing. And that's really meant that when people kind of matriculate into the profession, they already have kind of experience with these kind of you know, left-wing institutions and, and organizing frameworks and skills. So when they do hit the profession, they're kind of ready to go. Uh, we also have a big cross-membership in the States with Democratic Socialists of America. Um, and so a lot of folks kind of bring their organizing experience from DSA into the lobby. And so that's been really huge and helpful. You know, I think also people just kind of like aren't familiar or comfortable with or cognizant of their own ability to make change. And I think that that above all else is the kind of biggest barrier is, you know, like, yeah, like, why, why would I, you know, spend my time doing this organizing and, and the attached kind of left ideologies, their skills, right? They're like, it's like a muscle. And that muscle has atrophied, you know, under the assault of kind of Reaganism and Thatcherism. And I think we have to exercise it and build it again. You know, or organizing is a kind of discrete skill set. Um, it's not a difficult or complicated skill set, but it is. It, it, there, there are kind of techniques and, and knowledges there. And so getting architectural workers familiar with those skills of how to become an organizer has been a really big challenge. Activism is kind of more often than not like like boring and slow. And as much as we kind of try to have like limit our meetings and conference calls, like that stuff is necessary. And a lot of the work happens in those kinds of venues. So, you know, like getting getting people to realize that like, you know, making change, like yes, it, it is difficult, but it's also possible. And if we, you know, organize together and fight together, like we can win things has also has also been a, a barrier just because people aren't used to that. Right. Like and so like really a kind of thing like why would I spend a couple of nights a week in, in a meeting when, when I can just kind of go, go, go to the pub or whatever. Right. And so that, that's something that's tricky. But I think the, the more that we fight, the more that we win and the more that we demonstrate like, hey, yeah, like we're winning little things here and there and we're building little things here and there and the next time around that means we can do a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more and it kind of snowballs yeah totally i mean i think that's like a really important point to make about unions and, and general political organization is that it is quite often slightly boring but you know the the, <laughs> yeah, the yeah. kind of long-term results are what what really kind of it, it, it's kind of like you know we've forgotten it except for in maybe religion and um people who <laughs> yeah. are still kind of committed to faith organizations but you know we've we've lost some of that in in certainly in a in the political sphere is this idea of a commitment to a long-term goal uh, that that, that right. can be a, you know the, the word is is there a struggle but that yeah. the benefits of having kind of control over the things that that really dominate your life is really important 
This desire for control is not the only thing that drives people to struggle through the long meetings and gruelling campaigns that unionisation often involves. It's also the sense of community that arises from a shared understanding of your own exploitation and a shared commitment to overcoming it. Something which is central to the activity of workers' inquiry architecture. The group gets its name from the workers' inquiry method, which was first developed by Karl Marx in an essay he wrote towards the end of his life, in which he listed 101 questions to be posed to workers about the nature of their work and the impact it has on their individual lives. The method's main aim is to generate discussion and co-research between workers and encourage them to lead the production of knowledge about their own work. Thanks to the work of contemporary organisations like Notes from Below, the method has been revived for the modern worker. Here's Sam and Alex explaining more about its contemporary relevance to architects. The workers' inquiry, sort of thinking about that history of where it comes from, um, and it came out of having these conversations with other groups, but as ourselves, and saying that we wanted to open this up to be more public, and we wanted to have a public conversation about working in architecture and the and the material consequences of that, whether that's mental health crisis at work, whether it's um, even kind of harassment cases, um, or just like endless unpaid overtime. The way in which we sort of thought about that was rather than doing a survey, which has which has been done before or there's lots of um, architects journal surveys out there that report on some of these cases and other groups such as architectural workers have done this in the past but we really wanted to have a conversation and we wanted it to be a dialogue and so that we could kind of work together towards uh, the answers to some of these questions or, or not necessarily answers but potential solutions. So not just having specific case workers who are going to solve everyone's issues for them but collaboratively solving each other's issues together. I guess it sort of came out of conceptualising the union not as a service in which you pay a certain monthly subscription and then you get legal advice but actually as a community in something that you're engaged within and that you contribute to as well as sometimes maybe getting support from. We would develop this through something that we called member support, which, as we said before, kind of take, was taken from some of these other groups. Uh, and this is where someone would come with a particular problem and we'd work out what you could do now, like whether that was someone helping someone write an email or whether that was, you know, someone, uh, another person came and they were uh, like a quote-unquote international worker and they, they, were, they were finding it quite hard to get jobs because agencies wouldn't uh, help them. And so like trying to like work as a community already, so like beginning to form the basis of the union. But this is something that we really saw to carry through into the union in the future in that actually we would ultimately be the ones that would be supporting one another. A lot of those things were limited by the fact that we're not I guess a registered union or we're not part of a union so we don't feel necessarily safe to do kind of demonstrations and protests or sort mm. of the more uh, outward um, or public things yet. Yeah. yeah I guess well interestingly I think this is yeah one of the specific things that is counter to the very individualized egotistical nature of architectural work which you mentioned earlier as in people are not used to wanting to help their peers with the issues it's more about how can I as an individual get ahead in my own career that's like one of the fundamental things of shifting cultural attitudes towards work. This point about unions helping to shift attitudes away from the pursuit of self-interest and towards something more collective was also something which was picked up on by Fernanda. When we unionize, we we become more we become more conscious of work relationships. 
of the way exploitation happens in every sector of society as well. So these exploitation relationships, they happen between architects themselves, themselves, but also between architects and other workers that are part of building industry. Once you get really involved with all these matters, I think it's impossible to work the same way again. It's impossible not to look to your side and ask, what is going on here? Why is this person yeah. working so hard and getting paid so unfairly? So you start looking at the others as well. Unionizing opens horizons that aren't normally discussed in our conventional education. We begin to understand more about politics and also understand that everything is about politics. In FNR, we discuss matters that concern wider social issues, such as the fact that most of the population in Brazil doesn't have access to decent housing, as I told you before, because they can yeah. afford one. The truth is that Brazilian society is very unequal, and it also affects the way our profession is practiced. Most of the architects, they are only working for a minority that can afford for their services. That's what's going on right now, when the fact is that we are needed in the most vulnerable sectors of society. So as I told you before, we need to fight for public policies. We need to fight with the politicians for our rights, but also the rights of other people. Uh, we need to get involved with politics. We need to understand how it works and make connections with others that have the same interest. So we, we can't work by ourselves. So it, I believe that that's the biggest difference a union makes in people stop thinking as individuals and they start thinking about the whole thing. Fernanda says something really important here. Architecture only deals with about 5% of all the buildings that are built. There's so much architects could be doing, but the current system doesn't allow them to do it. And yet, architects have no way of changing this situation on their own. It's really only through collective action that this balance can be redressed. Because an architecture union needn't exist solely to secure pay rises and better conditions at work, important as those things are. It could also offer a means through which architects could start to change the very system that ensures architecture is primarily a preserve of the privileged few. I'm a big fan of the old industrial workers of the world slogan, uh, an injury to one is an injury to all. And, and so there's a kind of recognition that, you know, you, you, you gain more collectively when you organize and build collectively. So for me, it would be a real kind of disaster if what we ended up doing uh, was kind of just creating a kind of better architectural profession for architects, right? Our ambition is beyond that. And I think it's, it's out of a kind of deep feeling of, you know, all of our fates are tied together, right? It's, it's not based in a kind of altruism or ethical, oh, we have to help the workers who are worst off than us. It's, it's really like, no, like we, we, we all need to be doing better, right? And, and we only do that by fighting all together. Um, I actually think that the construction unions in the U.S. are like a good cautionary tale for us. You know, a lot of the unions, especially in the kind of age of Trumpism, have really become champions kind of unexpectedly of immigrants' rights, women's rights, like, uh, and, and really recognizing the kind of relationship of labor unionism to social justice more broadly. 
except the construction unions, right? Is that right? Okay. <laughs> yeah, at least here. I mean, the construction unions here, uh, not 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 exclusively, uh, but by and large, kind of tend to be quite reactionary and and kind of have really, uh, to their own detriment, taken up a lot of the anti-immigrant sentiments that are on offer from the right wing. Um, and I think that that's a good cautionary table. Like, like unions are not the solution, but they they are the, a kind of vehicle for the solution, right? I think there, there's no way without unions, but there's also work that has to be done to make sure that the union itself is recognizing its own kind of links with social justice uh, more broadly because the, the interest is there, right? The material interest between workers is there. It, it seems to me like something that's really, really important for something like architecture because architects could very easily be skimmed off the top. They do kind of very much fit the profile of earlier moves towards unionization in the early 20th century where you had separating off of a sort of labor aristocracy of various like skilled workers getting treated um, particularly particularly well by the, the their bosses as a sort of uh, kind of divide and conquer I suppose um, and, and that that's something I mean early on with the architecture lobby certainly seems like something that needs to be kind of kept in check I suppose doesn't it yeah def- definitely I mean I think that I mean we have a really broad a, a membership from kind of across the range of perspectives and experiences and political affiliations, you know, and I think that the architecture lobby is really a space where kind of people are in motion, right? Uh, meaning that they, they might show up to the lobby very concerned about their kind of own pay, right? And, and decreasing lack of agency uh, it, versus kind of like engineer or whatever else. But hopefully it's a space where kind of through discussions like this one, they realize that there's more at stake. As was touched upon just then, throughout the history of the union movement, skilled workers have often tended to split off from the wider movement and pursue better paying conditions for their profession alone, whether it be through setting up exclusive unions or simply by following a general profession-wide ethos of individual self-interest, as is the case with architecture. Such narrow self-interest not only weakens the power of the overall labour movement, it also hampers the ability of these skilled workers to bring about deeper changes in their workplace. Kiefer gave a good example of how a less self-interested strategy has worked for the Chicago Teachers Union. I always think about the Chicago Teachers Union. Um, you know, I'm, I'm based in Chicago, but the Chicago Teachers Union has really been on the kind of forefront of like rank and file, community focused sort of unionism for, 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 you know, a long, long time now. And I think one of the lessons that the CTU has for us is, you know, the teachers are going on strike to better their own conditions, but, but also, you know, it's, it's a, it's always an explicit demand of theirs to kind of make lives better for their students, right? They have this great slogan, which is our working conditions are our students' learning conditions, right? And so I, I think that uh, they have a kind of good example. They're a kind of good example of what a good, well-organized, militant uh, union can do for people who aren't in the union, right? So they've, they've kind of uh, made sure in their contract that all of the classrooms have air conditioning. Right? It gets really hot in Chicago summers, and that just as, as one example. Um, so I think that I, I'm excited about similar things we could do in, in architecture. Um, you know, a collective bargaining agreement is a contract, and that contract can include 
lots of things, almost anything. It could include uh, demands like you know, 10% of the firm's uh, you know, hours have to be on pro bono projects, for instance, right? Like it could include lot, lots of different things um, because, because all, all the union is is a kind of uh, way to get workers a seat at the table and have for them realizing the power that they already have as a collective, which is the ability to shut everything down, right, if, if the demands aren't met. And like, obviously, that requires a great kind of deal of hard work to kind of like really build that collective power and realize it and make sure that it's being put towards good and useful ends. But, you know, it's an amazing power, right, that that we can do lots of things with. (laughs) The CTU succeeded by articulating their demands beyond their narrow self-interest. Architects would do well to follow this example. Through collective bargaining agreements, Architects could arrive at the much-desired social impact that they so far tended to seek exclusively through their practice. This desire to reach beyond the narrow interests of the architecture profession seems to be something that workers in quarry architecture are also acutely aware of. We've been like incredibly inspired and in admiration of some of the amazing new unions that are coming out in the UK right now, whether that's uh, United Voices of the World or UVW or the independent... Uh, workers of Great Britain, the IWGB. And so we've kind of been inspired by like them who have unionized, quote unquote, ununionizable professions because they're, you know, incredibly precarious, they were outsourced. And so we've come from that, like, and, and realized that like we could unionize and that we could actually fight against the um, issues within our sector, seeing this as part of a broader struggle towards, uh, I guess, placing workers in control of their offices or their workplaces, right? And so, yeah, we really don't want to separate these things. And so we don't we don't want to set up our own union, for example, and be like, okay, we're going to have the Architectural Workers Union of Great Britain or whatever, because we want to be in direct contact in relationship to these sectors. And yeah, maybe in other parts of the world as well. And so we've already been in communication with other architectural workers in other parts of the world who are doing similar things like the architecture lobby in the US or there's a group in Portugal that have just formed and so like we want to and we're thinking about sort of making this wider international network I guess so that we can kind of have these conversations. Well I was just going to say yeah it's quite an interesting moment given these different groups that seem to have formed at this particular time, I guess, seeing what each other are doing, maybe. But I think you mentioned the word professions earlier. And I suppose that is um, as in ununionizable professions. And I guess that is a point that we're making is that we don't see ourselves as distinct professionals in contrast to these other workers. And that is usually the reason for people saying, oh, well, like making this distinction is should we really be associating with mm. other workers or like we kind of have a duty as professionals to just carry out our job as a service. So And I, I guess maybe just to add to that is that like also within architecture, so like the, there being this division within, you know, being the architect and that's why we talk of ourselves as architectural workers is that there's always been this division within the profession between uh, the technicians, which were generally more working class, and then the architects, right, who, like, got to make the decisions. And so we, we want to sort of... But we but now we're kind of extending, you know, rather than talking about them together, which is historically what's happened with, 
you know, uh, NAM and new architecture movement in the past, we want to also include, you know, all of these different sectors, or you might say, or job roles within the production of the built environment. So like whether that's the receptionist, the people cleaning the offices, also the kind of like BIM technicians. Um, but yeah, and maybe it's also extending that as far as to say, like the people that are like mining the resources to build the buildings that we build or, you know, more and more we want to work towards that as a as a goal and at the moment we're just starting within our workplaces i mean yeah the only way to really gain any traction is to build solidarity with other workers yeah be united yeah and, and i guess also then to bring it back to particular things that are happening in the uk like one of the big largest sectors of architectural workers are working on residential properties and some of these projects are with you know local authorities and also involve the demolition of um existing housing estates etc and part of form part of the kind of like wider gentrification of the city and so we also kind of want to see ourselves in relationship to these residents and not see ourselves just as the people that produce our architecture but also in relationship to the people that use architecture and so we've definitely been already having conversation with some of these groups uh, such as architectural workers who are I mean they're not residents but they're like you know always talking about the effects of the work that we do yeah and I guess ultimately forming um, a network that brings together residents who are taking back their estates who maybe want to work with a set of architectural workers who are unionized cooperativized and together like building this city in which we all would like to live and work in as an already established union the experience of FNYA shows how this kind of unity of purpose can be brought to bear on national, economic and political decision-making. Each architect union locally has its own connections. Yeah. And some, for example, are partners with unions that represent building companies when they want to negotiate better work conditions together. For example, if they want to negotiate with a big construction firm, they go together, both unions, and they do this negotiation. Yeah. Uh, nationally, uh, FNR has a closer relationship with the Engineers Federation, which is called FISENGI, and also with the Journalists Federation, which is called okay. FENAGI. Uh, I, I believe you were asking why the journalists. <laughs> it's just yeah, that right. these three federations, they got more united because the professions, they face similar working conditions, such as, as exploitation and informal work. Most of architects and engineers and journalists, they also work as independent workers. So they have similar conditions and that's why they have this closer relationship. Actually, we were trying with these three federations to found a confederation, which okay. is a higher level of a federation. Yeah. And that would gives us more strength to fight for those things. Well, we still haven't been able to do that since, of course, we have to negotiate with both federations to see their terms. While it's been far from easy, FNR's forging of links with industries which have similar working conditions has had an undeniable impact on the capacity of workers in these professions to bring about lasting change. It means that architects can suddenly see that the problems they're facing are not absolutely unique to their situation as architects, but that these problems are often systemic. And if the problem is systemic, it's not possible to only fix it in one sector. Changes need to happen at the national, legislative level. This explains why, 
in line with the desires of workers' inquiry architecture and the architecture lobby. FNR has also been active in social movements which have a direct impact on the built environment. FNR is part of a, let me think of translation, it's the National Forum for Urban Reform. Forum Nacional de Reforma Urbana. The short term is FNRU. This forum is formed by many social movements and other entities. And it was founded many years ago. They were also part uh, of the discussion of, of our new constitution in 1988. Okay. We had a, a new constitution uh, after our military dictatorship ended. We had a, a role on that as well. And also, um, another thing that I think it's interesting to say is that in 2008, there was a law approved, which is called Lei de Assistência Técnica. Uh, well, this law, it gives the right to poor families to have the architecture services for free. Okay. And that was a fight that FNIA, that was the thing that FNIA was fighting for for a long time. How does that, how does that work in, in practice then? Yeah, unfortunately, uh, uh, a law is not enough to make the things come true. We are still fighting for, for that to become a reality because um, we need public policies and yeah. we don't have any right now. Our current president said that they're not, the government's not going to invest anything in housing provision and we need it because there's a lot of people who don't have access to, to decent housing. That's why FNI is so close to the, the housing social movements. Now's probably a good time to introduce an article which Kiefer wrote on his Medium page entitled Radical Praxis, Activism Within and Beyond Architecture. Written shortly after the 2016 election of Donald Trump, the article implores architects to move from criticism to action and to realise that even the most ethical activist architecture is no substitute for architects becoming active in wider struggles for social justice, in particular through the collective realisation of their labour power. Imagine the interns walking out of an office building a prison, he writes. Imagine the production staff of an architecture office en masse refusing to work for the General Services Administration under a Trump administration. Imagine a strike for equal pay. Reading your article from um, 2016, Radical Praxis, um, so you say, well, it's point four, the site of political agency is not the product of our labour buildings, but rather in the conditions of their production. And you, you kind of talk about how you don't have a- an activist architecture, but you have architects who are activists. And um, it'd be nice to sort of like explore this because I think it's... it. It's, I mean, at the face of it, maybe slightly abstract unless it's kind of applied in, in reality. And, and you do actually in, in the article talk about examples of how this might play out. But, um, but you know, the, this, this notion of the, con- the con- controlling the conditions um, of production being a kind of centre of radical sort of uh, practice within architecture. Well, you know, I, I, I mean, I think that one of the ways uh, that we kind of experience our lack of agency as kind of workers and people in this process is by trying to imbue the kind of things that we make with an agency that we don't have um which i know is kind of (laughs) it's kind of like sounds like a riddle almost uh but but it means something pretty specific uh because i you know 
it means that we often look at our buildings as if they are the things with agency. Uh, you know, we talk about design and buildings that have agency. Um, but you know, like a, a, a design, like a building doesn't like ever walk a picket line, you know, like a, like a, a building, like, you know, a building, a building is kind of like inert, like it, it, it is political in, in, in the sense that it is a kind of, you know, uh, hieroglyph of kind of all of the forces that, that created it, forces of, of economy and laws and regulations and et cetera. But those things kind of, kind of change, uh, around the building, right? <laughs> right. The building doesn't do anything. That's only something that, that people can do. But that's a really important thing for us to recognize. I mean, I think that there's, there's a lot of architects who, you know, very well meaning. Who, who kind of see the things that they make as the things that make change. You know, I mean, it's, it's all fine and well to design better public housing, but if you don't have funding for public housing, like it doesn't really matter. And a lot of architects approach this stuff um, as if these things had never been thought of before, right? So like if we look, especially in America, where there's, you know, almost no public housing anymore, uh, in, in the kind of sense that we would we would like or, or think about traditionally, you know, they, they kind of see like, oh, well, if we just make a good design, then like, you know, the powers that be will see that it's a good design and, uh, you know, we can get some some money for it. Um, but but the reality here is that, you know, these aren't broken systems that we need to propose designs to fix. They're systems that are working kind of exactly as they are intended to, meaning that they're kind of uh, benefiting the one percent, they're ben- benefiting capitalists. They're they're not actually a problem for for the people in charge, and so uh, and 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 it's only by kind of uh, recognizing our collective power that we can kind of change that and intervene in that. You know, I think another kind of dimension to that quote is the idea that you know architecture that's kind of social, right, or, or purporting to uh, be for a public good, uh, you know, that, that should not just be the purview of a kind of a handful of offices that are kind of, you know, like aware. So it, it, sometimes you hear this called the, the nonprofit industrial complex or the NGO industrial complex. Uh, but but like really, like, you know, our, like every worker, no matter what kind of architecture office they work at, it could be the most sort of boring and banal, like large corporate place, um, you know, has an ability to kind of change that structure, um, maybe even more of an ability to change that structure. And so I think that uh, unless we kind of operationalize that, uh, uh, for, for the left that will never change these structures. And so, and, and that, that really is the kind of big goal and demand of the architecture lobby. Um, more than anything else is to kind of change, change these, these big structures. Um, and, and in architecture, uh, but they're obviously linked to, uh, even greater and grander structures of kind of, uh, global capitalism. What Kiefer says here takes us quite far from the basic goal of improving working conditions within the architecture profession. But that idealistic impulse which leads many architects to take up the profession in the first place can only be truly realised if they take control over their work as a collective rather than individual project. The aims of workers' inquiry architecture closely align with what Kiefer just said there. Our goal is to 
use the union as a means to change the nature of work, to actually take control of the means of production and actually challenge the type of work that we're doing. And that's something we've mentioned from the outset is that that's our fundamental goal. We don't want to be working on these projects which we think are problematic anymore. Unethical, yeah. Oh, unethical, yeah. Workers in quarry architecture have an interesting precedent to turn to in the UK. The so-called Lucas Plan, which emerged from engineers at the Lucas Aerospace Company in the mid-1970s. Here they are explaining how this remarkable experiment took shape and how we can draw inspiration from it today. Yeah, so the Lucas Plan was a group of workers who were manufacturing um, aeronautical products. products and yeah, and um, that were used in the military. Yeah, and it was part of the Lucas Aerospace. And Lucas Aerospace had 17 factories across the country. And so it was about bringing all of those different factories together. Essentially, you could see that as different officers within the architecture profession. And coming up with a new plan to create socially uh, useful products, rather than the products that they've been using to you know, push the war machine or whatever, um, actually making things such as uh, hydroelectric cars, uh, wind turbines. Um, this was all in the sort of 1970s. They were actually, yeah, encouraged by um, Tony Benn, who was the Minister of Industry at the time. And they went to him and he said, OK, we'll come up with a solution for how you can work in a different way. And and he, he went directly to the shop stewards, right? The, the union organisers in those workplaces. And I guess that's really what's inspired us. It's like the only way that they could do that is because they were organised. Yeah. And actually, ultimately, they were organising aside from the union organisation, as opposed to the bureaucratic top-down organisation. Um, they were organising themselves. Yeah, there's a new thing which is called like the new Lucas plan, which is essentially something similar to like the Green New Deal in America, um, but from a sort of bottom up workers point of view. And essentially, you know, the people that are making these products or, you know, if you have you have your skills, you know what they can be used for rather than it being this kind of like imposed thing. It's something that you generate yourself. Yeah. The Lucas plan reminds us that workers once had the confidence and capacity to take control of the organisation and outcomes of their work. It offers a very useful template for how architects could begin to pursue more interesting, ethical and socially useful projects and refuse those that aren't. Architects know they can do more interesting things than they're often forced to do by a system which realises projects on the basis of who has the money to do them. And while what they've learned in their training may have been tailored towards this system, the skills and expertise they have could easily be redirected to a more ethical output if only they had the collective power to realise control over what they do. But architects needn't sit back and wait for this distant ideal. By opening up a space for ordinary architects to exercise power from the bottom up, the union can immediately begin making claims against this unethical system. As Alex says, this bottom-up approach is really the only way that this unethical system can be meaningfully changed. As professionals, architects have a duty of care, similar to um, doctors, for the people that they're working for. But that's not actually being addressed. People aren't going to be taken off the register if they're acting unethically, because the whole industry is working like that. The whole industry is working on the generation of capital for some over others. So that's what we really want to turn around. Like, Reba have actually taken some steps in rewriting their code 
Institute and formed an ethics commission. There are a few people who are making moves to talk more about it, but we're saying that those moves have to be made from the bottom up and through worker discussions, worker to worker. And maybe just to add to that, also something that's kind of left out of those discussions generally is is about like the ethics of the practice itself, right? The architectural practice itself and the kind of exploitation that will happen there at that site. And so that's something that we've also been trying to, you know, include in those conversations. I guess another thing which is very current is the climate crisis. Again, I mean, you've seen these Sterling Prize winners come out with this Architects Declare headline. And it's people who are running these practices who are doing work all over the world, massive headquarters for corporations. um, Extensions to runways. Yeah, airports, massive resorts. And yeah, they've come out and said that architects need to do something, but are they actually going to change the nature of their work? How can we not just say, okay, we need to do something, but actually do it? And these figureheads, these architects are not going to give away all their wealth for the sake of it. Returning to Kiefer's article, he says towards the end that we must go beyond asking ourselves, what can we do as architects to improve people's lives? To also ask, what can we do as architects to end the systemic inequality that ruins life in the first place? This proposal is an important reminder that no matter how much power an architect has over their work, by itself, this will never be enough to change the system. Change comes from being embedded in a wider network of social movements geared towards a more just society. In her experience working with an established architects and urbanist trade union, Fernando was quite clear that this more measured and humble mindset is the best way to understand the role of an architects union. I think it is very, how can I say, uh, pretentious to say that we we change the cities and the society and the, the building industry. I mean, we, we try, but each step, I can't say about a huge impact we had. I, I, I believe I can say about these little things that, that are a small step to start a big change, you know? Yeah. Uh, for yeah, example, yeah. The, the fact that FNR uh, was part of the construction of our new constitution, I think it's yeah. a big thing. Uh, but it was not that FNR was the big one, the big character who changed everything. It was made with a lot of people, a lot of other organizations. And I think the big change is made like that, where when we get together with other people, with other organizations, social movements, other unions that can also help to make the change. But that's like a really good way to end what, uh, the, the the discussion because this is like historically not what, you know, architects are seen as, as the sort of big arbiters, the, the people who kind of fashion the city and have big control over it. And uh, I think especially the slightly more egotistical minded people who get into architecture, that's what they hope to do. And, and it's it's nice to really point out that the, the focus is not on the, the, the big role for architects, but that they're embedding them within a wider network of social of, uh, social change, I suppose. Do you agree? I mean, do, does that make sense? Totally. I think yeah. it is. I, I think that's it. I think usually architects, they think they're sort of gods, that they can control everything. But that's not true. <laughs> I mean, maybe in designing one little building, we can sort of control a little bit. But uh, on bigger things, it's not possible. We have to 
work with other people, we have to work with other professions, with other organizations to mm. achieve big changes. As a way of wrapping up, I asked Fernanda, Kiefer, and Sam and Alex how architectural workers can get involved in union organizing. Some answers are specific to the country, but even if you're not in these places, there's some useful insights. How can architects get involved in unions in Brazil? Um, first of all, they should get in touch with the union that represents them in the state they are currently working. Uh, and they should join the union usually by contributing with an annual tax to have the rights to access all the benefits that the union offers, such as accounting and legal advices. But they can also participate on activities proposed by their union, such as meetings and events. That way they can get involved with the main discussions related to the profession, get informed about their rights and ways to achieve better working conditions. It's also a good way to get in touch with other architects that have been through the same problems, the same situations and same working conditions. Can, you can write us uh, info at architecture-lobby.org um, and uh, you know we're an all-volunteer kind of organization so it, it might take a minute but you know someone will be in touch with you but yeah you know any anyone can kind of start a chapter of the architecture lobby all it takes is a kind of few get to get a few people together and, and kind of start having meetings and kind of mapping where you're at and what you can do and or how you might plug into kind of some of the larger initiatives that we might have going. We also have a kind of at-large chapter uh, for people who are maybe flying solo uh, in, a, in a small city or town or whatever and or just don't have the capacity to kind of start a, a chapter. It's, it is a pretty big undertaking, but you can join the at-large chapter of the architecture lobby. We do have international chapters now, which is very exciting. You know, one one thing, right now they're kind of limited to uh, the English-speaking world. Um, you know, I think that that's something that we would love to, to change, um, but it's kind of just, you know, been a, a, a practical consideration of you, you need to talk to each other to organize. Um, but that's kind of something that I think is really important to overcome sooner rather than later, I hope. Um, but yeah, you can you can send us an email and, and we'll get in touch. And, and uh, basically chapters uh, get kind of approved by the organizing committee, which is our kind of leadership body uh, composed of democratically elected leaders uh, from across the membership. Um, and, uh, you know, they can approve your chapter. Um, and we've, we've chosen the term architectural worker very deliberately. So uh, whether you're, you are a draftsperson at an office, whether you're an intern, uh, if you're, even if you're a student, uh, you know, an undergraduate, grad school, if you're an adjunct faculty, if you're full-time faculty, if you're an academic, like, um, you know, they, they, you, we, we allow you to uh, self-identify as an architectural worker and, and, and kind of, you know, I think one of the things that we've realized is that, you know, this kind of structure is, is kind of widespread and its tentacles reach far and wide. And, uh, you know, we need to kind of build an, uh, an organization that's nimble enough to match. So uh, if, if you think you're an architectural worker, you're probably an architectural worker and uh, <laughs> we encourage you to join. <laughs> In the short term, like what we say to people, what you can do now is one, try and 
come to our meetings, you know, sign up to our mailing list, etc. But also like just try and change the culture within the workplace in your office like now, like talk about how much you're getting paid, talk about uh, discrimination, talk about harassment, where you can, where it's safe to, um, if you feel comfortable, obviously, um, you know, sort of remind other people that like, you know, the boss is getting rich. I mean, I was working in a practice, the director had this huge property portfolio. And so it's like just reminding people of that and like bringing that up and being like, what do you mean he's like laying off all people? Or what do you mean that you know, the, the, the company aren't doing well. Uh, another thing is also just not being competitive, trying to sort of reverse that socialization or that kind of, you know, from academia and from practice, something that it's like really pushes on you and sort of um, be supportive of one another, you know, start a group within your practice. Maybe it can start off as a reading group and it sort of becomes a little bit, you know, depending on what you're reading, kind of like a support network, right? Yeah, because obviously we started this group through those discussions. It was through actually talking about what are we doing, how we're being treated, yeah. And I guess also in the in the long term, the way in which the union or the way in which we've imagined it so far operating is very much at kind of like almost like worker committees within each office of work. It's not going to be a centralized system. It's going to be something that's like you need to unionize your office. Like it can't be something where you have these flown in shop stewards who do it all for you. Like you need to organize yourself. Yeah, so starting a group. And um, yeah, one thing you can check very easily is if your practice is a Reba chartered practice. Reba has said that one of the conditions of that is to pay every member of staff a living wage. So if you're not, you can go to Reba and report your practice. Also, um, 10 days study leave if you're doing a part three. That's something that every charter practice should be giving. Uh, also, another thing that we've tried to do a lot is like re record incidents um, that happen in your workplace. I mean, I don't know about the legality or the ethics of doing that through audio or video recording. I mean, if it's serious abuse, I would definitely try and do so. But mainly we're talking about like recording it as, as a diary. And so like and with dates, times, members of staff that have been involved. I mean, we did that with our group. We gave each other diaries at the start of last year because we were like, oh, we're going to begin to record these things so that we have, you know, if, if you then have a complaint at a later date, you have a whole record of all of the incidents that have happened before. And that is incredibly helpful. Yeah, actually. Um, and it can be a real threat if you bring that up. Like one of my friends who was in a work situation mentioned that they had been keeping a diary and um, that really scared the employers.